Open your Bibles to First Peter, the first two verses. We really, this is a brand new study for us. And when I say that, we here at Grace Bible Church, we study the Word of God uh, verse by verse. Uh, we, we do it book by book. And, the, and what we're doing, the reason why we do it that way is because that's how God has revealed himself to us. Uh, that's how he's communicating who he is to us. He did it through the context of a particular culture, a particular person who has a particular audience that he wrote to. And this one is written by the Apostle Peter. And uh, he wrote it to a group of people scattered about. And we're going to really, we've been learning about that. And really, if you look at there at the top of your notes, there's a particular theme that really we're working with as we study through this grace-driven living in the face of a suffering, pressured life. And that really is the theme. Now, we've been studying this section here, these two verses, the very first two verses, for the last three weeks, and today we're going to finish. Now, it is about the chosen, not the show. Uh, He said, who is that? Who's the chosen? Christians. Christians are. Believers in Jesus Christ are called the chosen. We didn't come up with that title for ourselves. The Lord did. He calls us here in 1 Peter, the chosen. Now that shouldn't be weird as a follower of Christ. If you've been reading your Bible for any amount of time, you have noticed all over the place that you see that God is a God of the chosen. He is constantly choosing. Have you noticed that? I mean, God chose Noah to make a boat to rescue some animals and just eight people. That stands out as significant because the world at that time was populated and probably many uh, scholars believe in a similar kind of population as today. In only eight, only eight were rescued. Only eight were preserved. Only eight were chosen. Eight. As the rest, Genesis 6-5 says, because of the evil that was pervasive on the earth were destroyed in that catastrophic flood. God chose Abraham, Nehemiah 9 says. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau, Romans 9 tells us. Jeremiah 1, God chose Jeremiah as his mouthpiece to a rebellious people. Haggai 2.23, God chose Zerubbabel. It says he is his choice servant. We learned last week, 1 Peter 2.6, God chose Jesus Christ. And then you see in our verses in 1 Peter 1, We see that every true Christian is the chosen. You know, having said that, would you please look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And let me read these two verses again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and mercy 
be yours in the fullest measure. History is really a charting of the chosen from day one to now. And really, we could go before history to see that. Israel was chosen, Amos chapter 3, verse 2. The church was chosen too. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, this truth about election, now listen to this, was what gave the early church tremendous comfort in her suffering. In Acts 4, verse 21, they threatened Peter and all the apostles. You remember that? And they said, we're going to... We're going to bring suffering to you if you continue to preach in this name. And in verse 24, it says that Peter and the other apostles and the disciples with them lifted their voices to God with one accord, saying, O Lord, you made heaven and earth, and you said in Psalm 2 that we would suffer for following you. Now watch this, verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They comforted themselves with the doctrine of predestination. That is the design of that doctrine. And if you are at the place where for you it makes you uneasy, it makes you uncomfortable, and you're not sure of it, and you're struggling with it, I want you to know, so far to this point, you're not really in God's design yet that way with it. Because He's designed it to bring you comfort. They got comfort with the fact that God controls all things and that includes our salvation. Now, that is why Peter, in the middle of trying to comfort these people in all their suffering, starts with election in his letter. Here in verses 1 through 2, Peter is writing them a letter to help them live by the true grace of God in the face of suffering that comes in life. And he starts with election. In other words, for the Christian, our election is one of the greatest ways to comfort those in suffering. The fact that we are the chosen. Now in his greeting, Peter gives seven insights into the amazing truths about election. He says, well, wait a minute. Well, what does election mean? In this, that God chose the ones he wanted to save and he did it before time. That's it. And that your salvation is not owing to anything but that. It's not you pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's not you finally coming to some realization and going, you know, I mean... You know, I thought I was smarter than this, and now I feel like, all right, here I am. I've got it figured out. I've got things figured out. Nope. No. 
Election means that God chose the ones he wanted to save before time. He chose them, and Peter gives seven insights about that. Let's remind ourselves of some of these. First one, the particularity of election. The end of verse one, it says, who are chosen, and we looked at the particularity about it. What is it? That is that God, it is God who chooses. We're chosen by God alone. That is, we're chosen according to his will. And he gets no help from anyone to do that. Chosen by God alone. And so we looked at that. We sort of looked at what you could call the nature of election. Secondly, we looked at the place of election. And it says, those who reside as aliens scattered. Now what's our place? Not this earth. And that was the reminder there. That the reason why God did it this way is to make it clear... He chose a people that he could make it clear, listen, look, they're not of this earth. I've separated them. They're aliens. They're strangers. This is not our home. We belong to another kingdom. We're citizens of another country, see. One not made with human hands. And it's so important to understand what it is to be chosen in that kind of language. And I'll tell you, we live in a day and age where there is more of a challenge than ever for Christians to be separate from the world. And we oftentimes have the wrong understanding of separation. Either we're trying to run into some type of shelter away from it, or we're trying to be like it. And it's neither of those two things. God calls us to be in the world, but not of it. And that really is the point that Peter makes here right from the very beginning. Don't misunderstand election. He says, it is not for you to be separated and placed on some island that you could call Christian island. And you know, we talked about this before. We need Christian law enforcement. We need people that are Christians working in education. We need Christians, you know, in all, all fields out there. To make it clear, we are not at home with this world. The world is a system and we're not at home with it. So that's the second one. Thirdly, the plan of election. And Peter says that it is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, how does election work? It comes from a put-together plan of operations. And we talked a little bit about this. Now, who put it together? The triune God did. God put it together. In Titus 1, it says he made a promise, not to you and me, but to the members of those members of the Trinity. I mean, if you think about that, there has, God must be triune because he doesn't talk to himself. He made a promise to the members of the Trinity about how salvation would work. You say, what basis did the triune God choose the ones that he would save? He tells us here in verse 2, foreknowledge. Now, is foreknowledge God looking down the road to see who would believe in him? And we told you it cannot be that because it's fraught with all kinds of problems if we say that that is. We really make We really strap God into second place when we do that. 
We bind His hands. We bind Him to our will. To our choosing. You know, earlier we read from Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. It doesn't, if, if God is bound to our will, that doesn't sound like that verse is true. He doesn't do whatever He pleases. He does some things that He pleases, but there are other things He cannot do because He's dependent upon looking down a road and seeing who would choose Him. That can't be. We must let God be God. And that, we need to understand what that word foreknowledge is now. So that's not God looking down the road to see. The word foreknowledge, we talked about this last time, means a predetermined relationship. And so God determined to have a relationship with the elect. This is wonderful. And in fact, you could add another word to that. It is a predetermined love relationship. When did he do this? Ephesians 1 4, Titus 1 2, before time began. That's incredible. You say, I don't understand all that. Neither do I, but do we have to? We'll spend the rest of our life in heaven asking that question and getting better answers than you're getting right now, right? So God didn't look into the future to learn who would have faith. He he caused it all. It was all His plan. Now, as we go a little deeper in this, I, I want you to see something that I think is going to really help you uh, as we get to the seventh one. There is a kind of sequence, actually, that Peter is working with as he does this. And I, man, if you really see this, it's just... This is so helpful. It was helpful for me. And it's as though he has this one domino that's pushing over into the, into the next one and then the next one. Almost as though to say, oh, hey, this is all connected. And it, that's because it is. Now, up to this point, you have, okay, you have the mind of God, all right? And you have his plan. And even the place of election is really just identifying just where he wants us in salvation. And that is unattached to this world. Now, but now, how's God going to get the plan activated and going? How do elect people get saved? That is the next point. Look at it there, either in your Bibles or there in your notes. The power of election, verse 2, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You can call this the experience of our election. The experience of our election. You know, we're sort of like, I guess before salvation, we're sort of like broken down cars in a driveway that, you know, waiting for the engine to be turned on, to be cranked up. And it might look nice and we can wash it. And that's oftentimes what people do, you know, before they become a Christian, you're you're just always taking the car through a car wash to clean that thing on the outside to try and make other people think you're shiny people. 
you imagine that? Having a broken down car and, you know, some guy sees you down the road, you're pushing that thing to the car wash, right? So why don't you drive it? Well, it doesn't drive. This is how it works. And I'm working real hard to push this thing into the car wash. And you get there and you get that thing washed and it's all clean and shiny. Wow, what a nice car. Well, you might think so. But you get in it and you turn it, the, the ignition and it does nothing. That car was designed to be driven. The sanctifying work of the Spirit is that work that takes the car and gets that engine started. Turned on. Going. You can call this the experience of our election. The word sanctifying means to be set apart, to be separated. Now, listen, when the gospel is shared with the elect, at some point the Spirit separates them from their sin. Now watch this. By opening their eyes to see the value of the cross. See, before salvation, you didn't see the value of the cross. My brother could testify this true true about actually both of our experiences. You know, we grew up and heard some truth. I had a Bible, read it. But I didn't value the cross until the eyes of my heart were opened and I can see, oh, I am bound in sin and am in trouble and would be judged for this unless I have a Savior. And there's only one Savior, and it is Christ. And so salvation is getting separate. It is getting separate from sin. It is getting separate from the world. It is getting separate from Satan's kingdom. And so the sanctifying work of the Spirit then started something that gets finished when we get to Jesus in heaven or when he returns. You say, why do you say it that way? Because you're saved and you continue to grow in the experience of that salvation. That's sanctification. But this kind of sanctification is talking about that moment of when it happened. The work of the sanctifying spirit is to get you saved. To make you alive. Say it a different way. In a John 3 sort of way. To make you born again. Salvation is God the Spirit taking the atoning work of God the Son and applying it to the ones given by God to the Father to be saved. Now, that, this point is really the work of the Spirit to make us born again, and that leads us to the fifth point about election, the purpose of election. The purpose of it. Verse 2, that you may obey Jesus Christ, it says. Now, how does the elect get saved? The Spirit opens their eyes. How do we know that that really happened? They obey Jesus Christ. It's that simple. They just obey Him. Obedience. That's the main mark, by the way, of salvation. Now, in the last point, salvation is the Spirit separating us from our sin, and so there's forgiveness. But we need to ask this question. Separated for what? To obey Jesus. 
Ephesians 2.10. Listen to this. For we are his workmanship. Now that happens at salvation. You became his workmanship. Okay? You understand that? That means, by the way, that implies creation. So listen to this. I mean, we became his workmanship, his masterpieces. Listen, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So salvation is the spirit creating us in Christ Jesus. That's why we call ourselves new creations. Second Corinthians 5, right? New creatures. Creating in us. The lab of Christ. The anvil of Christ, you could call it. The kitchen of Christ. You see where there's creation going on. Notice, for good works. Purpose. But there's more which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. See, beforehand, when was that? The same time he chose you. So what are you talking about being chosen in Ephesians 1? Chapter 2, he now puts more of the pieces together. See, he chose you, and at some point the Spirit opened your eyes to see the value of the cross. You believed, and now you are now, not only do you see the value of the cross, your whole horizon and your whole world has been changed so that you begin to see good works to do. So I never saw those things before. That's right. I didn't see that that person needed service. I know. I didn't see that I needed to love this person over there. I know, right? I didn't see that I should sacrifice myself for that person's good, and I love doing that. Right. You're seeing stuff. Now the point is that salvation, the Spirit put you in a certain direction, and that direction is the good works direction. See, what are those? Anything Jesus Christ wants you to do. You got that? So what are good works? Anything Jesus Christ wants you to do. You say, how can I possibly know that? You got to read your Bible. Now you know why you read it, right? Anything Jesus Christ wants you to do. That's our new direction in life, obedience to him. Now, the Bible puts it in a lot of different ways. In Romans 6, it says you're freed from sin and you became slaves of righteousness. You became obedient, it says, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Say, what form? The kind that is from Jesus. Romans 7, submissive to the law of God. That's our new desire, our new direction. The law. Not to be saved by it because it is connected to the words of Jesus. To, to Jesus. Matthew 5 says that he came to fulfill that law. He's the picture of it. So if I want to be like him, I want to do what he did. Now there are some that think that Peter means when he says that you may obey Jesus Christ, that it is a kind of obedience like obeying the gospel, that obey simply just means to believe. But Peter uses the word that to let us know exactly what he means. You go from election to the work of the Spirit to open your eyes and make you spiritually alive to obeying Jesus. He's really sequential here. 
There's progression here. In other words, this is a purpose word. And by the way, the word that is a purpose word in the Greek. He makes us born again to obey Jesus. That's our new direction. That's our new life. That's what, I mean, we're all about the words of Jesus. We want to know them so that we can obey them. Write this down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he says, that person is conceited and useless. Why? Because he's trying to derail you from the simple thing that we're called to do as Christians. What is that? He says, uh, you reject that guy because that's, that's a litmus test for, for a Christian. Now listen, not just agreeing with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, but letting those words conform us, it says in 1 Timothy 6.3, to godliness. And by the way, After the Gospels, the rest of the words in the New Testament are the words of Jesus given to us by the apostles. So it's all the words of Jesus, okay? Obeying this book right here. And we spend the rest of our life doing that, loving that, desiring that. You connect it to what Peter just said, and what you get is that obedience to Jesus is a work of the Spirit. Catch that? It's there. I mean, that's the domino effect of election. Peter says, to you who are chosen, how do I know that you are chosen? Hmm. Well, because there's obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, turn to 1 John 2. I really want you to see this. I, I, we got to work this out, Okay. Now, John wrote the Gospel of John to help people know Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is the Savior. He says, hey, I want you to to come to that knowledge. I want you to be convinced that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Okay? That's why he wrote the Gospel of John. When he wrote 1 John, he wrote it to help people know if they really did believe that gospel message, okay? So John is to help get Christians, to create Christians. First John is to help those Christians be assured of their Christian life, to have assurance of salvation. Why? Because, man, life can be super discouraging. And sometimes it, make, sometimes it can make you feel like you're, man, am I really even saved? And John says, let me help you with that. Now, what is one way the person can know if they have believed the gospel? Obedience to Jesus. Now notice how I said it. Didn't say this is the way you become a Christian. This is the way you tell a person has became, become a Christian. It's a difference. So how can I know if I'm one of the elect? Obedience to Jesus. Not perfection, but direction. Is this the direction of your life? 
Now what that means is that First John was written to give the ones who claim to believe the gospel assurance of salvation. Now, Steve Lawson, now listen to this. Steve Lawson says this. He helps us with this. Quote, Ultimately, the greatest assurance of salvation comes from your seeing a changed life in you. A life that only God could change. That you know that God is at work in your life because you see how you are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You can fake walking an aisle. You can fake praying a prayer. You can fake joining a church. You can fake being baptized. You cannot fake a changed life from the inside out. That's the case that John is making Lawson goes on to say, wherever there is the root of regeneration, that is the new birth, there will be by necessity the fruit of sanctification, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. That's helpful. So starting at verse 3, look at it there, First John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. Now here's how we can know for certain that we're true Christians. He says, here we go. I like that. By this. Have you told it? He hasn't told us yet. By this. All right. What, what is it? I can't wait. How? I mean, what he's saying is that our election has turned into an expression of a true salvation. How? John says, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, First John 2, the one who says, I have come to know him, that is, I'm a Christian, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him himself, to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Now that's just another way of saying you ought to look like you're going the same direction as Jesus Christ if you truly are a Christian. And by the way, we don't, do we? Not perfectly at all. He said, well, then how does that work? Well, it should bother you that you don't, right? It bothers me. It bothers you too, doesn't it? If you're a true believer, to know that you're not going in the true direction, in the direction that Christ is going. So obedience to him is the way that we know that we are elect. It's, it's the way that we... It's the way to know the sanctifying work of the Spirit is operating in you. Now let me show you from another text. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you're in 1 John, go left a few blocks and uh, you'll be there. All right. Chapter 1, verse 3. Here's the way Paul says it. Start at verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did they get to be like that? I mean, look at all you've got there. You've got work of faith, right? Labor of love, steadfastness of hope. How'd you get there? Verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. You're chosen. He says, you're elect. He goes, I know that you're chosen. How do you know that? Did you have a talk with God? No. Because uh, I know some other ways. Well, you say, well, maybe it's because you're born into a Christian family. Maybe it's because your parents go to church. Maybe it's because, you know, you guys read your Bible at home. Maybe it's because you've been baptized. 
No, none of those. I know your elect, he says, verse 5, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You started to do what the Lord said to do, right? You started to do what the Lord did, in fact. Verse 7, you became examples to all believers around. Verse 8, the word of the Lord sent it forth from you. Verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Listen, that's repentance and faith and obedience to Christ and preaching and love for the word. It's all there. And what you're seeing is new direction. New life, changed life. That's how Paul can say, I know you're chosen. Look at your life. That's the purpose of election, obedience to Jesus Christ. I love how John MacArthur puts it. He says, quote, How do you know if you're elect? You know it because the Word of God teaches you and moves into your life and convicts you of sin and shatters your complacency. You know it because all of a sudden your spirit has become awakened to your sin, to the reality of Christ, and then you receive that new nature. You love God. You love His Word. You long to serve Him, to glorify Him. You hate sin. You want to resist it, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're seeing here. Now, Peter is saying, and I want you to understand this. I've mentioned this already, but the electing work of God is to get you to obey Jesus Christ. We're not talking about the perfection. We're talking about the direction. Let me say it a different way. The perfection of salvation is all Jesus Christ. All of what he did on the cross, all of what he did in declaring you righteous. Imputation. That's all him. But the direction is what he produced in you. Obedience is the evidence of that direction. I mean, it should, it should work like this, you know. Obviously, we don't always perfectly obey Christ. It should look like this. Somebody comes to you. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. And they say, hey, What's going on this, with this thing in your life? It doesn't look like you're obeying the Lord here. You should be able to hear that and say, thank you. Why? Because you understand the direction of my life. And you're trying to help me with that direction. That is where I want to be. It's where I want to be going. Obedience is the evidence of that direction. It's the mark of it. A true believer fails. But what's it look like when you fail? You go back to the cross. You confess your sin. You praise God for Jesus Christ. And you get back on your horse. And you get going again. That's how it works. Obeying Christ. Now let's take a look at the sixth aspect of election The sixth insight that Peter gives us, and let's call this one the pact of election. The pact of election. 
Now, lots of words I could have used. You could say the obligation of election. I almost used preservation of election or security of it. But I like the word pact, and I'll, you'll, 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 you'll see the reason why. Now, as I say that, I'm telling you, as we look at this verse, you're, you, you're, you're, it's not what you think. I promise it is not what you think. Verse 2. It says, and be sprinkled with his blood. You say, oh, what does he mean by sprinkled with his blood? You say, oh, I, that's so easy. This is the atonement of Christ. Right? You say, oh, I'm afraid to say yes. <laughs> yeah. My answer is... This is not speaking about atonement. And I'm going to show you. Now, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you from a sequential standpoint, we've been looking at this verse, and then I'll show you from Scripture. Now, it doesn't fit how he set this up. The salvation part is earlier, right? That's the, that's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is something different. So follow the thought here, okay? You're going to see this. God has chosen, right? He's chosen to separate a people from their sin. He used the plan made before the foundation of the world. The Spirit found those ones that heard the gospel and He made them alive. How do we know He did, he did that? They obeyed the words of Jesus. That's when it says that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. The sprinkling, listen to this, comes as a result of the obedience. Or you could say, together with the obedience. That is not how atonement works. So this must be a different kind of blood. You say, okay, well then what does it mean? Some people take the sprinkling and they think, oh, he's talking about baptism here. He is not talking about baptism here. So what does it mean? I'll show you. Now let's make some connecting thoughts here. All right. Peter's Jewish, right? And as a Jew, he's he's writing in a Jewish way. And and by the way, he writes in a Jewish way all throughout um, this Look, look at chapter 2. Uh, you know this. I mean, he's always using the Old Testament to explain himself. In chapter 2, he talks about our identity and the privileges from our salvation. And, and to do that, he uses the temple and the priesthood, right? That's Jewish. He's, I want you to know he's doing the same thing here. He is taking a Jewish concept and he's applying it to Christian living. Now, follow this. Let's ask the question, what then does the Old Testament teach about the sprinkling of blood on people? There are three places to go if you wanted to know about that. You could go to Exodus 29, also repeated in Leviticus 8, which talk about the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, okay, and they were sprinkled They had blood sprinkled on them to consecrate them. That's the first place. The second one you could go to, you could go to Leviticus 14, which has to do with the consecration of a leper 
And that leper was cleansed. And when that leper was, the idea of it was now it seems that the leprosy is not really uh, affecting him. It's, it's now he's, got, he's gotten past that stage. And so they, to demonstrate the, the fact that he is now clean and he can go on with the getting into the temple and all that kind of stuff, he was sprinkled with blood. He could show that to the other priests and everybody. He's been sprinkled with blood. That's sort of his entrance. The entrance fee in, in, into, the, into, the, into the tabernacle area. So is Peter referring to that in 1 Peter 1? You know, that being you know, cleared from unclean status. No, I don't believe so. You say, well, what does it have to do with? Well, there's one other passage in the Bible that speaks of sprinkling blood on people. And I want you to see it for yourself. So turn to Exodus chapter 24. So you have these passages. One has to do with ordination, the other with getting clean from an infectious disease. And that, by the way, none of those involve all the people. So what we need is a text that involves sprinkling of blood on all the people. Is there a passage that does talk about that? Yes, and it's right here in Exodus 24. By the way, as you're getting to that place, this one time in the Old Testament, this is the only time where all the people are sprinkled and it's referred to twice in the New Testament. In Hebrews 9, 19 through 20 and Hebrews 12, 24. So this one thing that happened had impact. And I believe it is also being referenced here in First Peter. Now, this sprinkling of blood we're about to see is, let me you might want to write this down. It is the blood covenant from the Old Testament. Old Testament. The blood covenant. Now start in verse 3. God gave Moses words. He gave him, you know, the Ten Commandments. Okay? He gave him all the ordinances for Israel to follow. And here is their response. Look at what they say. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now that is impressive. It's impressive because we know it's kind of impressive because they think that they're going to do that. But we know that literally in seven chapters, they're going to be worshiping a golden calf. Okay? You know, I would be saying, well, what happened? You just said all the, we're going to obey you all the time. Right. You know, when your kids say that, I'm always going to do what you say, mom and dad, forever. Okay. Write that down. Uh, Verse 4, Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. (laughs) You know, I don't blame him. I mean, well, hey, if you're committing to obey all of them, I better write them all down. You know, (laughs) So he builds an altar, and in verse 5, he sends men to make offerings. Verse 6, he takes half of the blood and sprinkles it on the altar. What's that? This is, again, mark it, sprinkled blood for the Lord. It's his altar. Watch this, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Second time they said this. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled on the people. 
And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Blood for the Lord, blood for the people. Now, what does this mean? What does this signify? Two things. Commitment by the Lord and commitment by the people. This is a pact. It is a pledge. The Lord is brought into this covenant, and so it is a commitment of faithfulness for Him. The people are brought into this covenant, and so it is a commitment of obedience for them. Got it? So you have a covenant of obedience, a blood covenant, you could call it a blood covenant of commitment to keep the pact. It's a consecration of their promise, a a, a promise to keep the commitment to obey God. Listen, you guys said you're going to obey. Let's put this thing in blood. The imagery is amazing. I'm going to show you this in, in a moment. It's, it's, it's flat out amazing. It is a promise to keep the commitment to obey God. All his words. The sprinkling symbolized their commitment, their, their commitment to obedience, God's commitment to faithfulness. And what Peter does then is he takes, is to take that and, and he says this, this is for us as it relates to our salvation, as it relates to election. This is for us. Salvation then works this way. Here we go. God chooses. He separates us. He determines to have a relationship with the ones he has chosen. He sends the Spirit to make us alive. He changes our desires to obey Jesus and then enters into a covenant with us, a pact based on our pledge to obey his word. That's what this is. And he seals it with blood. Whose blood? The blood of Jesus. Is that good? You see, that's why we say this isn't atoning blood. It's sealing blood. It's Hebrews 9, 19 through 20. The blood of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of obedience. What is the pact then? We commit to obey. God commits to being faithful to us. Isn't that incredible? That's what I want. Because I always know His faithfulness is going to outrun my obedience. Always. By the way... That's how Jesus understood it too. Mark 14, verse 24, right there at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He borrows that phrase there from Exodus 24. And what he's telling them is this. This is the key to finally getting you to be a people, to stop being liars. All your life you've disobeyed God and you haven't done what you said. Now, the blood of Christ is going to be that that covenant you can enter into that by means of the work of the sanctifying spirit, you can now be in a place where you can obey Him. See that? 
What is the picture then? This is the picture. He promises to redeem us. We promise to obey Him. There it is. He said if we keep our salvation only if we keep our promise to obey Him. That's not how it works. In fact, Peter is going to explain that in verses 3 through 5 because he knows that's what would be the next thing on their mind. And that's why we say that this is a commitment to obey Him. Yes, you will fail, but you confess it, and then you get back to obeying Him. See, what do you, how? What, based on what? Based on the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why you obey Him. You say, well, what's the significance of the sprinkling of the blood then? Blood on the altar. I mean, it could have been oil or water or something else, right? Why blood? Because, now listen to this, mixed in all of this is God's forgiveness. Because His forgiveness is always based on blood. Isn't that what Hebrews 9 says? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of what? Sins. Every time we come back to this covenant of commitment to obey Jesus, we come back to blood. When you come back to blood, you come back to forgiveness of sins. In other words, it is implied here that you will fail. And that's why we need to see the blood, don't we? It is a symbol of grace. All right, one last one we really need to get to to about election here as we bring this thing to a close. Number seven, the perks of election. The perks of election. Peter says, may grace and mercy be yours in fullest measure. Some of your Bible versions say multiplied, be multiplied. Grace and mercy be multiplied. Most of the New Testament writers and their greetings that way. Grace is the Greek way of saying hey. And uh, peace is the Jewish way of saying hey, you know. Um, this is just what they did. But these are Christian words. These are our advantages, our privileges, our perks as believers to be at a place where we can live for Christ and where we are no longer at war with God, no longer in a place of friction in our relationship with Him. That's peace, right? Now what are the perks that grace and peace open up? the means of grace and peace that come through the doctrine of election. Let me give you eight of them as we close. Now you could call these the um, advantages. Why does this doctrine of election bring us comfort? How does it bring us comfort? In eight ways. First, it is the main road to humility. The doctrine of of election is the main road to to humility. It is what so many call the pride-crushing doctrine. The doctrine of election is pride-crushing. God hates, Proverbs says, the proud. Well, how do I get away from that? How do I get the pride to be crushed? Through the doctrine of election. Why? Because it shows you that you had nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. It's not about you choosing Him. It's not about your wisdom. 
It's not about you realizing that you needed a change in your life. It's not about you feeling love for God. It's not at all. First, first beatitude in Matthew 5, poor in spirit, right? Humility is the key to becoming a Christian. I mean, you don't get there without it. The doctrine of election takes you there. It says you have nothing to do with it. I mean, it is the main road to it. No wonder 1 Corinthians one twenty six, when Paul tells us to consider our calling, he's got to tell you to think about it. Think about, think about election, he says. Think about our election. Not many wise, not many noble, noble, not many mighty. He tells us God has chosen the foolish, the weak, the base, so that no man may boast before God. By His doing, you are in Christ, Jesus, it says. So the first perk, it is, it is the main road to humility. And we desperately need humility. Second, it is the key to living confidently. It is the key to living confidently. You know, back to that first Thessalonians 1 passage, it says, His choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in, also in power and with Full conviction. And the idea of the full conviction is confidence. Full confidence. The doctrine of election tells us that it is His doing and that should make you confident. Boy, as this is about Him, I can just live my life. I can just live my life. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And I don't know why I believe, but He wanted me and that's enough for me. Hey, let's go. Right? That's exciting. Tell me what to do and where to go. See, you ever feel that way about life? Oh man, I wish there would just be somebody that can come around. Tell me what to do, where to go, and I'll be fine. I'll, I'll get my feet moving, I'll get my hands working, whatever. That's what this is. Third perk. The doctrine of election helps us elevate the glory of God. It helps us elevate the glory of God. In Romans 9, after saying that salvation is all about God's purpose according to His choice, in verse 11, he says this in verse 23, And he did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. The doctrine of election helps me make much of God. Why did God do it this way for His glory? Could it have been another reason? No. For his glory. Ephesians 1 3 through 14, to, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why we read that earlier today. It is, it, it is a God exalting doctrine. Not about my will, but about his will. See? All right, let me give you a fourth perk. The doctrine of election connects us with joy like nothing else. It it connects us with joy like nothing else. Psalm 65 verse 4, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Oh, you know what he says? What he's basically saying is that... Because He chose us, we can have joy. Do you realize that that's the only way to be saved if you're elect, that that alone should give you joy? 
That alone should give you just the only way you can be saved is if you're elect. That should give you joy. And some people say, well, what about that other person? By the way, Peter said that. What about that guy over there? Remember what Jesus said? Hey, quit worrying about other people. Why are you worried about other people? Can't you be happy for the joy that you have in being chosen by him? What does that have to do with you? You're not going to say you're more righteous than he is, are you? Really? should make you so thankful. There's a fifth perk. The doctrine of election opens the vault to every benefit possible. Every benefit possible. I'm, a, I'm about to blow your socks here. Uh, Ephesians 1.3. This is so good. Maybe you've learned this verse and you haven't realized it's actually connected to election. Now verse 4 tells us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but the verse before it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Did you hear that word every? Yeah. You think it means every in the Greek? Oh yeah. Every. We have every possible benefit that there could exist because we're elect. His grace and peace connect us to every single benefit. Every single privilege. You lack nothing. Isn't that good? Next time you go out to your car and it's got a half tank of gas, you think, oh boy, I don't really have... Just at least you got every single benefit, you know? Every single bit of grace, which, you know, will take you where you need to. You'd be so thankful. Sixth perk. The doctrine of election is a fast track to holiness. It is a fast track to holiness. In that verse in Ephesians 1, 4, after it says He chose us, it says that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us for holiness. And He didn't waste hardly a you know, bit of ink to get to that place. Lots of connections from election to holiness. Second Thessalonians 2.13 God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Verse 14 That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to grow in holiness? Understand the doctrine of election more. Put it next to your mind. He chose you to live this way. Colossians 3.12 As those who have been chosen of God holy and beloved Put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Did you know that the route to compassion and kindness is holiness? Did you know that? That's what he says here. All those things because you're chosen, see? There's a seventh perk. The doctrine of election is a massive motivation for evangelism. A massive motivation for evangelism. Sometimes you hear people say, well, why sure the gospel of God is just going to save his elect? It's not how that works. 2 Timothy 2.10, you you misunderstand what Paul definitely understood. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. He says, uh, I'll gladly endure all kinds of suffering so that the chosen will finally get saved. 
parents, that's why you do what you do in getting your children the gospel. You say, but I don't know if any of them are chosen. Listen, that's why you suffer in giving them the gospel. Because God will take that gospel and make them alive with it if they're chosen. So you know what that means for you? Give it. Give it. And go through moments of life that Paul calls in 2 Timothy 2.10, endurance. I endure all things, he says, for that. And finally, the eighth perk, the doctrine of election explains fruit-bearing and prayer. It explains fruit-bearing and prayer. John fifteen sixteen. you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. In other words, I chose you for this. And that your fruit will remain so that, here's, here's another reason why I chose you, so that whatever you ask, this is prayer, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And Jesus says election is true, so go out and bear fruit and pray. You say pray for what? Pray that God would use your life and message to save others. To make much of him, see. That's First Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, what do we take from all this? This. This kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but for me, this kind of stuff takes me deeper and higher. No wonder all of heaven praises him for stuff like this forever, Right? It just blows the mind when you think that God has worked out things this way. And I love him for it. And I wonder, just like you, whoa. I feel like the more I learn, the more I don't understand and know. But it doesn't make me want to not follow him or not want to worship him. It does quite the opposite. And I pray that that's the same for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. and. Thank you for the promises. Thank you for all that's here, Lord. Help us to have conviction this way. May it be that we are not, um, that we don't stop in our pursuit of you just because we don't fully understand something. I pray, Lord, that instead that it would draw us closer to you because you tell us whatever we pray, you, you will respond to us. You've chosen us for that. You've chosen us to pray. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become those kinds of people. Making much of you. What a pride-crushing doctrine this is, Lord. And and I need that because I see so much pride in my own life. And I pray that um, you would help us all as believers in the meditations of just this thought of you, that we are the chosen, Lord, and you did this to bring yourself glory. And that is such a good place for us to be. We love you and pray for this in Jesus' name.